0: When was the last time you've been to a theater? Do you know this exciting moment when the room goes dark, everyone goes quiet and the curtains are about to open? Today, you will get an exclusive look behind the scenes and get to know the creative and entrepreneurial decisions that go into bringing a play onto the stage. And also what you and your brand can learn from that creative process. Sweet people, what's up, how are you? Are you looking for the sweet spot of your personal brand or your product? you've come to the right place. This is the Sweet Spot Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Zeus, And today I talk to Paul Glaser, Managing Director of the English Theatre of Hamburg. Paul is a creative jack-of-all-trades, I would say. He started his career as a dancer at the Royal Swedish Ballet School and he worked as a dancer, singer, actor... He wrote and produced music and today he's the Managing Director of the English Theatre of Hamburg. Drawing from over 30 years of experience, Paul shares in this episode how entrepreneurs and brands can bring their idea to the stage and how to successfully manage creative processes and teams. We look behind the scenes of a theatre production from A to Z, how the future of theatre might look like and we discuss the value of life events or as we call it shared experiences i've known paul for several years we've been working together on several projects i helped him with rebranding the theater we put together events like live podcast night and he wrote music for some of my projects one of which you are about to hear now because paul also composed the original theme music for this podcast so turn up the volume and enjoy not only my talk to paul but also this upcoming kick-ass rock and roll intro Welcome to the sweet side. This is the sweet spot podcast with Mark Zeus, investigating entrepreneurship, purpose and the creative life. So welcome to the Sweet Spot Studio, Paul. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you. How
1: are you? All good? Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Um, considering uh, everything that's going on right now, I think I'm pretty good. Okay, that's good. Because for the audience, we are
0: recording in the first week of January 2022. And the first thing I was wondering, starting off into this year, talking to another other creative person, how do you handle off days? Can you even take off days? To me, if everything is busy, you have different projects on your plate, you keep working. But as soon as the off days start, it's uh, either a total breakdown or you come up with so many ideas that you can't take off days, actually. How do you handle that?
1: I handle that by being um, having a solution in my mind. Can make me relax. Okay. So if I'm tired and if I'm facing a lot of problems, whatever, then I cannot relax. But if the thought process ends in uh, some opportunities that I can see that Mm -hmm. I can go, oh, I could do this, I could do that. Then I can put it off and say, but today I'll relax.
0: Okay. Okay i'll I'll work on that. That's a good tip, actually,
1: for maybe all the
0: restless creatives listening now. that's perfect mm-hmm. all right paul you You are here for the second time, first time we still did our interview in German. Mm-hmm. Now we switched to widen the audience, the sweet people in English. Mm-hmm. so I'm gonna try and wrap up your amazing long lasting creative career in some some bullet points, and we can we can dive into whichever needs more context, okay so you started your career as a dancer for the royal swedish ballet
1: well as a dancer um in in training at in the training. royal swedish yeah. ballet school yeah
0: so and then you worked as a dancer as a singer as an actor and then you expanded your creative field above the stage or beyond the stage you worked as a composer as a writer as a musician and you did stage combat at one point, I remember.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it sounds like it's it's like one thing after the other, but it was actually everything at once, yeah. if you will. Like okay. When I was um, when I was um, uh, at the Royal Ballet School, I was also performing in shows and stuff on the mm-hmm. outside. Uh, also writing music always in the background, and when I graduated from uh, from the Royal Swedish Ballet mm-hmm. School, I actually got a grant which was wonderful. I was got like won this prize, uh, a certain amount of money <clears throat> which was going to uh basically sponsor me to go around the world and take classes, Amazing. you know. And and I had been to New York and trained there. Uh and then this was going to just allow for me to go maybe to Paris, to somewhere where because when you're a dancer, um uh you, you don't you can't really go on vacation, you can't go hmm. Somewhere where you for four weeks are just lying on the beach because it just makes it that much harder to come back. Yeah. So usually you would go to a spot where you could train every day or even if you took a couple of days off, but you could, you had a uh, good training, uh, you know, a good teacher there. You can do a ballet bar or something just to keep everything uh, up and running because it is, um, really an elite sport. It's unbelievable. Yeah. People just don't understand dancing on that level, what it takes. Sure. So uh, I was supposed to do that, but instead I took the money and I bought my first uh, Portage studio, my, my four track and my microphone. Nice. <laughs> uh, and I had to actually, afterwards they were, they're still waiting for me to to send them like, <laughs> what did you do with the money? Yeah. And that that never came. I did, however, take some classes somewhere too, but that was my first purchase. So at that early age, I had my first studio, which I then always had at home. Yeah. And so I was writing and doing things uh, parallel.
0: So was that from you being interested in music just from the creative perspective, or did you go into the career as a dancer knowing this is a, sh- a freaking short time? You can be an active dancer. This is a very short career path you're taking, right? You have a couple of years and then you can be a teacher or you can run your own school or something. But being a dancer, how long can you be active? Mid-30s or
1: something? Yeah, I think I think um, it's a legit question. And for some people, it might ring very true that you're on th- at that early age, would be that aware of <laughs> the progress maybe, maybe not. of your yeah. life. I wasn't. Okay, And I think... Um, that you—that's not what how you think when you start dancing. For example, I—I I did have the thought because I was singing already and writing mm-hmm. music, and so I wanted to be a performer. And I—you um, have to remember this is like this is back in the eighties. Fame had just come out. People—it was just yeah. all about individualism and dancing and mm-hmm. stuff. So it was all about becoming like a pop star or something like that. I mm-hmm. guess I was thinking, and I know that the thought uh, about dancing came in that I wanted to start with that because uh, that is, the, you know, what carries the uh, the time limit, you know, not just how f- how long does your career span for, but how early do you have to start, yeah. you know? So yeah. I started with that, not really um, intending to become a classical dancer. It was actually, okay, I got, got into the school, which was great. Mm-hmm. There was fierce competition and I loved it. But in the back of my mind, I was also singing and I was also acting, And so that was never like a clear plan, Mm -hmm. um, which I, I, I doubt that there's anybody out there that has gone through life and gone like, this has gone according to plan, um, it, it was just ever living the moment fully when I was there uh, and, and, uh, and then sort of building on where that took me.
0: Talking about according to plan, maybe not in the creative industry. I can imagine there are some people out there that take different career paths, different life situations that maybe can follow up. But um, as we learned from a lot of interviews already, creative people don't think like that. They rarely ever go like okay from A to B to C to whatever. Today you still work as a composer, a writer, a director but I want to focus for today's talk on your job as a managing director of Mm -hmm. the English Theatre of Hamburg. Maybe we start at the beginning. How did you end up from Sweden wherever you've been in the world, in Hamburg, and how did you become the managing director of this
1: theater? It can be answered fairly quickly. Okay. It's, it's um, given that, that that's how it's been. It's been island to island to island. I'm doing this, and that leads me to this. Um, uh, getting a job in, in Cats uh at that time bringing me to hamburg for the first time and then also musical theater didn't exist in hamburg or in germany at Mm. all it was more operetta and stuff like that so cats was a big experiment and then that took off like we all know today hamburg is like the third largest musical city in the world almost i would say
0: you've been in the original cast in uh, german cats right
1: yeah i joined after like a year okay so i was not the original but i was the second generation if you will yeah um Yeah, unbelievable, way back when. And so musical was something completely new. And uh, since there was um, a lot of interest and it happened quickly, new shows just was popping up like Phantom of the Opera, Starlight Express. And so I I started to, um, um, I I stayed more and more in Germany. I did Cats and then I went back to Sweden, I did a show there. And then I came back to Germany and it was on on and off or back and forth for a few years. And then it was kind of clear that I was gonna establish myself more in Germany.
0: Then, when did you start working with the theater?
1: That happened um a lot of years before I actually became management director. It was contacts and friends who also worked in the theater who came up and asked for uh, sometimes choreography for a play, or as you mentioned before, fight choreography, which is something that I just said, sure, I had never done or trained, I was a trained dancer and I knew about safety and security on stage Mm -hmm. and I just knew how to make it real. And, uh, and so it was no life or death situation that I was going to put actors in danger, but it just turned out that I had the capability of making it look really real on stage. So I did that for a few productions. And then I wrote music for almost, I've I've written more than 40 plays I've written music for in the English theater. Um, and uh, through that, collaboration that sort of took off then after a while is when they asked me to to join as associate director and then eventually managing director amazing
0: okay so for everyone who's outside the theater industry or not even not even has a deep knowledge about theater and creative work how can i imagine the day-to-day job of a managing director of a theater how does your how does the job look like what's your responsibility who do you work with
1: well, I think I, I think it's difficult to give a general answer. I think every theater is different. And mm-hmm. where this theater is, I mean, we are the English theater in Hamburg, which is a whole different thing than being a Staatstheater, Like mm-hmm. I worked with the opera in Sweden, for example, or even like Staatstheater, for example, which I, I, is a concept over here to have a theater that has like a choir, an acting department, and an opera department, a ballet, and State how to bring, of course, it's very different. State theater. State so theater. Speak, yeah. Yeah. Um so uh that's why being a manager for each of those theaters is a different thing. It does bring the whole um strategy and the whole economics into it and and how how you make it go around and what you want your theater to be in 5 years from now mm-hmm. and how to fight for audience segments and become attractive to what you know what repertoire do you pick and which is in line with where you're moving. So there's a lot of questions which are requiring a kind of um Overview, mm-hmm. which I think is something that that I've had always. And I do think that's possibly something that you kind of either have or don't have. Either you see in a, in a show your performance or you see what you're doing and not much further. And then maybe you have the ability to sort of take a step back and zoom out and see um the whole situation if you will Mm -hmm. and that's what's required as a managing director is that you can sort of see the different departments while keeping in mind where the theater is going what would be economically feasible it's not just about making money it's about you know the art itself and all of those different departments you have to sort of manage together
0: and that's what i think is so interesting about this position and we will go into detail there more have the creative vision aligned with the economical terms of the whole? Whole that's whole unusual, though. Thing, right?
1: Uh, it's un- in most theaters, actually, have an artistic director oh, and then okay. a managing director, if yeah. you will. And the managing director is typically somebody who is more savvy when it comes mm. to numbers and and uh, the legal terms and all of that. And the artistic director is responsible for. Um, and in this kind of case, it's in a smaller theater, which this theater is. Yeah. Um, it's uh, one person.
0: Okay so you have to combine all those skills that's perfect well
1: more more put it correctly i have to get the right people in place that i can rely on when it comes to things that i don't really necessarily know how to do myself
0: as a good manager should yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) so before we go more into detail about the i want to talk about the creative side of your work and the economical side and the theater industry in germany especially but before that what's the english theater of hamburg how did it come to be why is there an english talking english speaking theater in hamburg in the first place
1: well it should be because hamburg has for as far as i know always pride itself on being a very international city a mm-hmm. uh, global hub if you will there's been like like centuries of of close trade with england and stuff like that so it's never been just a German, German city, and I think if you if you can offer trade, if you can offer business opportunities for people, which Hamburg is doing at an intense speed now with startups yeah. here and there. Um, not everybody speaks German, so what are they going to do uh, culturally? You have to offer that as well, and yeah. for and so that's why I think English theater is just needs to be a part of the cultural environment in Hamburg.
0: Hundred percent, yeah. yeah. And they go back quite some years. It's founded in the 70s, In right? the 70s,
1: 1976, it was uh, founded by, by uh, I was going to say Bob and Cliff. In German, you would say Mr. Rumpf and Mr. Dean, which is something I had to get used to as well, that in Germany you have to <laughs> see everybody yes, and yes. people just don't, you know, appreciate when you say do to them, like you do in Sweden, I'm Swedish, yeah, and in England too, but so uh robert Rumpf and clifford dean founded theater they came over they're two american people who came over uh had studied theater in the states and um, were language teachers and then just realized that they missed theater so they started and, and pretty quickly created a large group of friends around them who all contributed. And yeah. then the theater was, was founded.
0: How would you say that the theater changed with all these years under the belt? And now that you're a managing director, where do you see the theater? Where do you want to take it? I mean, it's still relevant. Hamburg, as, uh, as we say in Germany, zur so Welt, door to the world. But I think it gets more and more relevant. There's more competition nowadays. Also, well
1: but- I mean a, th- a theater has to evolve a theater yeah. is a living organism if you will so it will never stay the same and if it does um it's it's just uh not doing anybody any favors so d- to try to sort of be in touch with time and my kind of vision for it right now is more more being in touch with what's going on in the West End in England mm-hmm. and uh, and also to a degree Broadway and sort of see that you can come and see a performance here which wouldn't be out of place there, So I'm not measuring what we do with other theaters in Germany, uh, if you will, which I don't mm-hmm. think is necessary at all.
0: So let's, if you, if you like, let's talk a little bit about your creative role in your day-to-day work. So if I imagine, okay, you're managing directly, you're also directing plays, you put the music up for it, you work with the, with the actors directly. Um, can you walk us through the process of putting up a play, like from selecting the material, where do you find it up until premiere night maybe?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I can, I, sure. Um, so, so walk us through your day. Uh, n- no day is the same. Yeah. So, and it, depending on where in the process you are, it's, it's very different. And that's part of the charm of, of doing what I do. Um, well, starting with the idea, first and foremost, looking for a play, unless, you know, which I have in the back of my mind to write a few myself, but um, finding out what, uh, what you think would be interesting. Uh, for the Hamburg audience now. Mm -hmm. So I go to London, I look at plays, I read a lot of plays, and I think uh, that when I found something, then we put a season together to go, what could go with this play? Because we have a pretty vast audience, if not vast, at least, it's very... Um, it's very broad as far as taste goes. We'd like to do like a classic play, mm-hmm. a thriller, a modern drama, for example, and then maybe a, a, a comedy of mm-hmm. sorts. Okay. Um, so then, then we pick out the, the other plays, and and then of course at this particular point, it's uh, Bob and Cliff and myself who sit down and discuss. And I'm usually um, doing either the classic play or the modern. Uh, and they direct one each and i direct two out of a season once the plays are picked and and their plays in the season is decided then it just goes according to plan it goes um, about three months prior to premiere is where i start casting my play and
0: can i ask something before we go into Mm -hmm. the casting um from the economical side if you read a play you like how does it work as a theater? Do you buy a license of that yeah, play, or it, it, just as a as a as a designer and, and talking about media and licensing and creative value of things? <laughs> how, how does that work?
1: Oh, it's very easy. I mean, I, I skip that step um, uh, because w- you find a play that you want to do, and then you find out who publishes that play, and then you write them and you say we intend to do this play in this in this time slot for so and so many performances, and then um, they write you back and they ask you how big is the theater what's the capacity what okay. are the ticket prices and based on that is where they calculate how much your fee is going to be meaning how much the percentage uh, is what you're going to have to pay in licensing fees and then of course if the rights are even available
0: okay hmm. And there are some exclusive plays that you can't even license.
1: Well, sometimes, but okay. usually it has to do with uh, if, for example, um, last season, there was one play we wanted to do, which was licensed in German by another German theater. Ah, okay. Uh, and then, of course, they didn't want the competition to have the English version and blah, blah, blah. So it was blocked okay. through that time. Okay. So it can be different reasons. Yeah. I, I like that. I like the economical side of the creative
0: industry, because yeah. oftentimes creatives don't don't go into detail too much how to monetize their work and how mm. to put licenses on it. And so thanks. Okay. So we got that out of the way. We picked our four plays for the season and then it's time to cast people, right? Mm-hmm. So you need a native speaking.
1: Sure. We only cast in London. Yeah. So, and uh, that doesn't mean we only pick British actors because in London of course has uh, Irish actors and blah, blah, blah. And especially now with Brexit, it's been something that we have to really pay attention to not mm-hmm. to just hire British actors, which we've done or the theatre has done since the beginning uh, because now the, the, it's, it's just so complicated with work permits and stuff like that and we're still working that out. Mm. So the goal is to get back to actually freely hire people from England um, and now we have to sort of look into do they have an a, a EU passport. Some of the actors are British but they might have a yep. different passport or they're Irish um, yeah. So what I do is I just write onto Spotlight is what we use. It's an online platform for professional actors in England. Um, and we send that call out to only to agents mm-hmm. and they send, uh, suggestions. They suggest actors that they have that would be suitable for, you know, one or two other roles. And then I sit down and usually we get about, um, well, Hundred fifty to two hundred actors per role. Well, wow. yeah, and then so it takes a couple of days, uh, or sometimes more, to go through each and every one of those actors online. So you look at the the show reel, and you sort of, uh, and at the end of that, I pick normally eight to ten actors per role. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I invite to an audition, then I go over myself and I audition them in in London and then I give them two days off and I have a callback day when I call them back uh in ensembles so then to mm-hmm. see how they work together and then by that time, I have maybe five from each role come yeah. back, and then I make my decision as to who who I would like to work with
0: okay that's that 's interesting. I would compare it with um i don 't know h r like mm. human resources mm. in a different, in a different uh, working environment. So what do you pick people for? Is it something that you can point out in terms of experience, creative expression, or is it just all revolving around the role they have to play? Or is there a certain style that you like? I mean, that's, that's a very interesting part for me from the outside. How do you cast people?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it is. Um, it's unbelievably quick. I can I can tell you that it's it's uh, just amazing how quick you see when somebody comes into a room and starts reading the monologue that they have. If you think that they're right for the role and for for you, um, it's actually just a matter of seconds. So I I never give them a lot of text to learn. Mm-hmm. I give them a shorter segment and they come in and do it. And I might work with them in different ways, but it's it's um, it's uh, an intuitive decision really it's about yeah. believing them in the character and then also about how they of course how they are when you feel the the, phys- the chemistry yeah. of a person yeah. i mean you know yourself you can meet somebody at a party or somewhere and pretty quickly you have mm-hmm. at least a sense yeah. you know and then yeah. i see them again i see them again if i call them back after a few days so i can see how they interact with other actors and then uh you know Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty swift process. Okay. Off the record, you told me once, and I
0: really like that. That you take a lot of time telling people no, and if you know someone <laughs> gets the role, you're pretty quick about it. And I thought that's really lovely because if yeah. you, if you get the gig, you have enough time to talk. Mm. But I like if I get a no, and someone takes its
1: time. Yeah, I mean, I've done enough auditions in my life too, and if if um, and it's a horrible feeling to feel like oh the director gave you literally. Uh, Thirty seconds, and you came all the way from wherever. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think it's just fair that if I invited somebody, even if I see pretty quickly that this is not going um, to work, but to at least let them finish the scene. And if I give them a second scene, usually they kind of want to read that as well. I let them do that, mm-hmm. and then so that they they can walk away and feel like, well, he saw everything I wanted to show him, um, and I didn't sort of just stop him in the middle and say thank you. You know, mm-hmm. I do that with the people I like because and then that's, I go- that's the
0: amazing part
1: <laughs> <laughs> no because then i see i, I immediately know yeah they started I see, I see them a couple of and i've tried a couple of things with them and if i'm happy then i cut them off and i say thank you so much and i now learn that i have to add you are great i'll see you at the call back because <laughs>
0: you didn't do that at i first. didn't do that at
1: first <laughs> oh my goodness so my 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 casting director yeah. Um, in, in London, he came up to me and he said, Oh, they came out. They were completely devastated. You didn't even yeah. let them. In. And I said, No, no, no. I, I like them. That's why. And it's so I, I've learned to say that, that I will see you at the callback. You have convinced me. Thank you. It's good. Good add on. I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect.
0: All right. So then you have your, you, you recast them for the recall. See which group interacts the best, mm-hmm. which one, which characters you need to, to put people on. And then what happens? You bring them back to Hamburg it depends on the play
1: some sometimes in, in certain plays um characters can be very individual in some plays especially thrillers and stuff it's the balance between the actors that are uh of utmost importance that means that if i hire somebody um especially like for example in one play um in um, in death knell where Throughout the play, you don't know who did it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's a thriller. Um, So, every character has to be, throughout the play, has to be believable that they could possibly, potentially be the one. So, then the relationship between them always have to sit perfectly so that, in retrospect, I can think back on the woman who I thought was an alcoholic housewife, kind of, you know, bullied by her husband, Mm -hmm. that she's actually the one who planned everything. So, she can't be too bullied and down. And I still need to... So then, uh, for this particular casting, I had hired the lead girl. And then I wanted to build everybody around her. Mm-hmm. And then once I'd had the callback and I'd offered her the part, she turned it down. And she said, no, I found something else. Okay. Which made me not hire the guy who I had planned to to play her husband and not hire the other guy. So I had to start from scratch. Um, so sometimes people come to do uh, an acting audition just to see, do I get the part? Mm-hmm. Or I would just want to be the director okay. and then turn it down. And that is... It's a it's it's like a sour apple, like you say in Germany. It's, yeah. it's really uh, doesn't you make know. your job any easier. No, okay. no, yeah. because they have to they have to blend, they have to merge. Yeah, you know. So. Okay,
0: okay. Mm. So then you got your cast. You come back to Germany. There's still so much to do. You have a whole empty stage there, no lights, no things on stage, no music. Uh, how do you approach that?
1: Well, it's it's um. <clears throat> Um, well, the set is already done. I've already had my meetings about set design. How we do it. I've already have a, a, a plan for how I want to light the show and so, music So when does that stuff. happen? Oh, that happens before
0: reading it. You already get ideas on how to um, build the scene. Yeah, okay. yeah. And
1: okay. then I also have my set designer read it, and and he com- comes up with an, an idea for mm-hmm. it. And and I tend to be very spontaneous. So even if I have a set, uh, when I start rehearsing. When I first rehearse, we have built the set up, kind of a scaffolding of the set in the Mm -hmm. rehearsal room, Mm -hmm. and then we rehearse it there, and then we go on stage with a real set, because we have a pretty quick turnover between the shows, Mm -hmm. so that... Once the show that is running now is uh, usually has the last show on a Saturday. The set gets torn down in the night between Saturday and Sunday and also the Sunday. Then it's built up on Monday, Tuesday. And that's when we do the light rig wow. on Wednesday. And on Thursday, we already have a run through with everything and taking pictures for the program. And on the Sunday usually it's already of a, a first audience. It's okay. a very That's quick fast. process. Yeah. So it really depends on the show. Sometimes I, I just plan more time if the show is very complicated. But throughout that process, nevertheless, I work with the actors and new ideas come. It's mm-hmm. like, actually, you know what? If you open the door this way, it would be much better if it actually opened that way, and then I'll call my set designer yeah. and I say I'd like the door to open the other way, and then he will just get in there mm. and rebuild it. Okay. So these are things that that sort of develop throughout putting it all together.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And music. I know that you write a lot of music that you put into your yeah. plays.
1: Yeah, and it's a gr- it's a great tool. It's um, um, uh, and it's actually something that I would think is more in in more along the lines of of British theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have an opening number, which I always, or an opening music or sound, which always, I, th- I think it's important. It kind of lures or pulls the audience into the play. Yeah. Lights come down, there's a music soundtrack going, curtain open, lights come up, and the music comes to an end, and then it sort of pulls you into that world. Um, so that's great. And some plays, um, it could be, Um, it could really strengthen, for example, uh, an emotional moment to have it there uh, in the background, just like scoring. Like if Mm -hmm. you asked anybody now, if they saw a movie, what do you think about the music? Most people are not actually aware that there is music there. And the same works for theater. If you do it subtly and throughout, Mm -hmm. people are just going to, it's just going to steer your emotions in a way that you kind of, so it's sort of, is holding them in my hand and sort of leading them through the show and here you're supposed to feel this and that that you can help that with with music.
0: It's more immersive experience. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, and totally.
1: especially for thrillers where um I did I I think it was um one reaction I got when I did Woman in Black mm-hmm. because it's it's a horror kind of thing. Um and the music was just played such a big part. You know, it's like it's dark and you know on stage and the, and the emotion is there and if you can build like a sub soundtrack up and then have these reactions and and you know yeah, these strong yeah. accents of music and and um, one woman she said after the show she said i didn't realize you can actually get that scared in a theater Wow, that's amazing and then that's i amazing. think yeah and that is really what what's the sound does yep. and sometimes it's amazing because um i'm sitting there with my with my sound technician and we're, we're leveling the show, sort of going, mm-hmm. how loud is this sound supposed to be and from what speaker and blah, blah, blah. And then we come to a point like uh, like in one thriller where there's a scare, the actress on the other side, and bam, he's hitting the window and she screams. And and he played it, and I said, it needs to be louder. It needs to be louder. It needs to be louder until he says, we, c- we cannot have it this loud in the theater. People are just going to – it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And if you would have sit, sat there in the theater – it, without the play, and I would just would have played it to you. You would have thought it was crazy to play it that loud. But yeah. in the show, at that moment, it just made every nobody thought about the music. But mm-hmm. it just had that effect, yeah. like it, yeah, like yeah, a yeah. movie has. Yeah. You sit there and go, bam, you know. That's and so it, it's a, it's a great tool, and I yeah. love using it and and working with it. And it's also fantastic for plays that require different locations all the time or, or costume changes and stuff to sort of build segues throughout with light and sound so it doesn't feel like oh there's a break in the show and we're all waiting here for like 20 seconds because the actor has to put on a wig or mm. whatever but you can all make that fluid yeah with music sweet.
0: yeah okay so what I really like about this is how you can weave in all your different fields of experience and expertise and it's like a huge amazing play field for you i think that's not not very common to have that kind of creative freedom to do music <laughs> costumes everything from one hand if you want to do it hmm. so what i wonder is is there a certain kind of strategy or do does it always happen in a first music then setting then actors or what happens within you if you read a play and you feel okay this is catching on this is a play i want to do is there something that always comes first or because i mean you have to reimagine the play and the narrative of it again and again once in music once in set design costumes acting directing it's all it's going through the same thing again and finding different ways to express it and that's so interesting about the whole coming together of the the play i think
1: yeah. For, for me personally, I think that it's, um, um, when you have an experience and you have those skills, if you will, yeah. um, it's nothing that you would plan as in, okay, now I sort of, you know, sort of plan it like this first. How does the actress move? And then how do you know, light it? And then I put the music in like this. This is something, there are lots of elements in that, which are, uh, just spur of the moment, ideas for mm-hmm. me. I need to see the actors in the room. I need to work with them because each actor is different. So um, I even if I have an actress coming in and she's supposed to say this and this, and the other actor is supposed to react this because they're long story, blah, blah, blah. Um, it will change because mm-hmm. the actors do it differently. And and even if I've imagined the scene a certain way, it might not really work because either if I insist on them doing it a certain way or physically, uh, I just cut their wings Mm. because actors are so intelligent in their own acting that I have to allow for them to, to express that. So I have to sit back and be respectful enough to to, to tell them, mm-hmm. show me how how would you do this? Because they know they know the scenario, they know what they have to do, they know the room, um, and they move around and do it, and I can capture those moments, and I can decide what to keep and what to throw away. Yeah, yeah. If nothing comes, I can give it to them, and mm-hmm. we can work it out together. But often, um, it just happens. She's there. She turns around to the window. She grabs the glass. She turns around to him, and she goes never, and she throws it. Mm-hmm. If that didn't come from her it would just look really put on and mm-hmm. really stiff mm-hmm. but it, she might not pick up the bottle she might just go around and she might do something else and so and when she does that and if she does pick up the glass and throw it then i'll go to Matthias and i go we need to strengthen that wall because the glass is going to go in there and then he strengthens yeah. the wall yeah. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is nothing that i planned before mm-hmm. uh, and then also with music as i'm rehearsing with them I might have an idea before what the music would be like, but I see what it requires at that time. So Mm -hmm. I can, after rehearsal, run into my studio and I can just write the soundtrack Mm -hmm. for it. And that's a swift process because it's very clear to me what that music needs to be or sound design.
0: Okay. So listening to all of that, you have this ability or you can rely on your intuition, on your experience and on your feeling in Mm -hmm. the moment. Was that something you have to come to or have you always been sure that you can trust your gut when it comes to those decisions?
1: I think it has um, taken a lot of time to just grow the confidence. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not to, be, to be cocky or to be just like rude or whatever, go, oh, I can do this. It's, it's about allowing yourself to, to um, trust to sort of go, yes. Sometimes I'm sitting there and, and nothing really does because maybe the scene is not really. And I, I sort of, uh, it's it's just moments where where it's important for the show and, um, um, yeah, it's just learning to trust yourself. And I think that goes for so much in life, anyway.
0: That, exactly. Hmm. Exactly. So that's a, it's good little little experience for that. Hmm. So. One more thing before we come to the economical side and the, the overall managing director perspective. I wonder if you feel a certain responsibility with the plays that you put up. Because to me, especially today, with every kind of entertainment, every kind of story that you tell, it's always attached to certain meanings and the mission and values that are Within the story captured within the story, even if it's an old play, you can put it up again, interpret it in a modern way or whatever. Do you feel like there is um responsibility you feel or an overall arch that you use to choose the plays you put on stage? Or is there like a line the English theater follows?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there are places that I just wouldn't do today. Mm-hmm. And there are mm-hmm. places where I change things in the plays. Okay. I, I call the author and I say, okay, I, I think this and this would probably be better like this. And um, if you have that kind of relationship, but you call the publisher and you say, I'd like to make a change. Uh, and usually they're very they're open about that and mm-hmm. they go, okay, that's fine. I mean, there are places that I've cut pages okay. out of the script. And I said, let's not do those because it really um and do, about do you, have
0: a, do you have an example like why why yeah, well, and the, when would you cut something well I
1: mean I wouldn't cut something what, what you referring to what we're speaking about now that I think is inappropriate but for yep. example death now mm-hmm. what what's what's like i I've mentioned that a couple of times now um but um it, it was a whole segment in this first act which just dragged on and okay. to sort of build the tension there I just said this whole story of hers here or it doesn't cannot just cut that whole thing mm-hmm. out you know what I mean so it was uh, th- those kind of things okay um, yeah and as far as responsibility absolutely you just want to mirror society now and sort of see things that you think is current and it's important to talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Uh, and yet stay within the the Im- well image or the what the theater is the audience that you have also how much can I provoke if you will also yeah. um and certain audience segments love it really want want that and others don't so as a manager um you step out of this artist seat and just become uh become a strategist if you will mm-hmm. if that's even a word and so to go okay how can i do something that would sort of that that odd that would be aimed or geared towards uh, would be for that audience segment and something else and also involve a newer segment of audience. Um, I mean, just now with, with the pressure on us also uh, expanding as far as uh, digitalizing what Mm -hmm. we do, just having a Mm -hmm. digital offering, if you will, just showing shows and, and it just showed me. And I think I mentioned that last time that um, most people that watch us digitally had never been in the theater which was super interesting that's to amazing. see that oh my god it's a whole new audience yeah. so you want to be current you want to be fresh but all in in the line with where you want your theater to go to yeah
0: that's nice do you have like an absolute dream play that you couldn't put up yet that you always wanted to do
1: um there are I mean we're so limited as far as how many actors we can have mm-hmm. because the space is smaller and then economically we have to sort of be how many actors per season can we afford um so that's that's a limit, but there are definitely plays um that I want to do um that we might not be or the audience that we have you you kind of have a responsibility of of teaching your audience as well yeah like uh so we've had we've had a group that has followed the theater through the at least 80s, 90s, whatever. And we kind of know where they're comfortable and what kind of they want to see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And to do something like um, uh, a play that's called The Motherfucker with the Hat, which is a phenomenal (laughs) play. It's hysterical. But it's just a little too heavy for that audience segment they okay. probably would be embarrassed just ordering tickets for it okay so. <laughs> okay they can't speak the name the play they yeah can't no and it's yeah. not just about that but it's about the subject matter yeah. it's about um uh, you know it's plays that are really moving and really um which i just realized that they would just be shooting straight over the heads of the people that we have right now yeah. i might be able to do that play in a couple of years mm-hmm. but for now we will you know try to stay within uh step by step towards yeah. where we want to go
0: Okay, so now we're talking strategy. Hmm. So now we get into the uh, managing director's seat again. You talked about the audience. And I think I've been to theaters in London West End. And it's a very, very, very different audience compared to a traditional German theater. As hmm. you said, there are a lot of people that have subscriptions <laughs> to theaters for years and years. And I think it's, it's worth it. But you kind of have to fight for a younger audience in German theaters. Is that, is that is that right from, from looking from the outside in? Is that
1: Yeah. I mean there there are so many, so many different um aspects to that. First and foremost, it's how do you reach your audience? A mm-hmm. marketing campaign and how mm-hmm. do you reach the right people? That takes time. Mm-hmm. And then you slowly build towards that, but while building towards a younger audience, you don't want to lose your older audience. Exactly. You yep. know, so it's a constant uh, constant weighing one against one another or taking it very slow and, and calculate it like this and now, now what's interesting for me as a managing director now is that being an artist uh, writing music and stuff like that and then even thinking about adapting something for an audience is, is just um, you know you would say that's a complete sellout Mm-hmm. If a person sort of mm-hmm. does, oh, it could have been this, but I want to do this because I think they like it better. Yeah. But as a managing director, and of course, I have to think like that. Yeah. So it's two different ways of thinking: to be what what serves the theater the best, and how does this set us up for the future the best? Um, and that is something that took a while for me to. I can't. I can't just go and do whatever I want to do just because it pleases me. It has to be attached to some sort of plan.
0: That's an interesting position you're in fighting your inner creative and you're in a managing director mm. um how do you negotiate that
1: it's it's not that difficult i mean because okay. uh, i've been i've been also i mean just take take doing shows before for um the whole struggle between between the corporate world and and theater i've i've done uh, a lot of commercial theater in my life, mm-hmm. and I've done a lot of like intellectual theater, if you will, and I've never valued one more than the other, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, to a degree, of course. You know, you have you have like a of a, of a, a commercial show that that is just basically um selling a product if you will but it's still it's still parameters mm-hmm. around that I show sure, which sure. An, an, another show would be as well if you do a show with poetry or something it's just different parameters yeah. and then you can skillfully execute it and and create a, a very uh, a, something very artistic out of it but the way society works today it's it tends to be two camps it's like the commercial camp and mm-hmm. the the actual theater mm-hmm. camp mm-hmm. and sometimes i think it it makes sense and and many times i think it just doesn't That you look down, you know, some people working in the commercial field and you think that, "Mm," um, and I would rather, you know, do it in a certain way, which I think, um, maybe I'm speaking out of line right now, but Sweden, for example, and Germany, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a good thing from the 70s, 80s with the state theater being sponsored by the state to a degree or subsidized Um, you have a responsibility to also educate Mm -hmm. people so you don't do plays just because you know people love them you have to actually and that was something that was very popular when everybody or society was very rich in the 80s 90s -hmm. especially Sweden and now when people are hitting on hard times then it's still that you know I don't have to be I don't have to fill the seats in the theater. I just want to really shake them up or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and and that could be fitting in some situations, but I think you also have to have the other aspect to go, okay, well, what what am I trying to say? How can I do this? And my, my incentive shouldn't be to scare everybody mm. running out of the theater. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. 100%. <laughs> I don't know if that even makes sense, but you know what I mean?
0: Oh, absolutely. If you experience cultural products like, movies shows and even theater in germany compared to the uk or america you can feel a very big difference especially Mm. i can't i can't talk about sweden i don't know that well enough but especially in germany you feel that there is a very different approach to it Mm -hmm. even post-war building up the economy again who gets to distribute money in the german film industry especially i Mm. have some people my some friends working there and that's very Different process compared to private, inve- private investors or. Yeah, but other both people the States and
1: England have never been, they haven't been uh, subsidized theaters yeah, the way exactly. that Germany and Sweden yeah, has. Yeah. So that's the biggest difference.
0: Yeah, totally. So me personally, especially after the last two years, I'm absolutely drawn to any kind of live performance, be it gallery openings, theater, live music, whatever. And at the same time, I see that a lot of young people are so used to short-form digital storytelling, like Insta stories, TikTok, short YouTube videos, whatever. So where do you see the theater audience for the future? How would you pitch like the, li- the amazing live theater performances to a younger audience? How do you think you can... Bridge that gap, or is it even a gap? Do you don't even see it that way? Like, how how do you get people into theaters that are used to TikTok, Instagram, and all the other things?
1: Well, I th- I think it's it's um, very difficult to make that comparison mm-hmm. because you're talking about entertainment um, uh, coming to a person mm-hmm. like this, and just TikTok and and YouTube and all of that stuff is something that you just um, you might see something that is very. Um, powerful and, and, uh, and uh, have a wonderful experience doing that. But a theater is always a shared experience. It's sitting in an audience with people around you and, and becoming one and sharing an experience. Um, and then you could say, well, that's something you would also get in a movie theater. Well, to a degree, yeah, you're right. But it's but, not live. But it's not live. And yeah. adding that aspect of live theater, it's, it's just you can never reach the heights that you can with theater yeah. through uh, through just a video.
0: Yeah, 100%. Mm. Okay. I like the idea of the shared experience. So, like, you don't have to sell it to me. I was just thinking about it because, yeah, I think that our approach to media and stories in, in general is changing. Mm. But I think exactly what you said, if you can share, really share the experience. And I also feel like there is no... It's a German saying, no second floor. Do you know what I mean? Like an mm. acrobat? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, if you see something live, there's always this quote unquote risk of failing. And you can feel mm. that. I think that transports to the audience and you will never have that with any kind of, even if it's an interactive movie, you will never have that. Mm. So it's different. Um, it's more distance between you and the creative product, mm. I think.
1: Absolutely. I think that it's um, – and that's something that a lot of live performers also use, that they would come on. Th- circus have mm-hmm. always done that. You know what I mean? You see them do the flip off and they, they exactly. fail the first time. They fail the second time. The third time they do it. You know, it's just yeah. building that tension. And in theater, we don't necessarily build in th- things where they drop something or or things go wrong. But but uh, it's it's definitely that risk and that you see. And people love that. People love to see when something goes wrong and just be sure. shaken up a bit and go, sure. oh, my God, it's actually happening. Because audiences today, like the question, how do you bring a TikTok audience into the theater – well, first and foremost, it's going to take them a while to get used to that they can't sit there and zap or or mute or whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But yeah. when you sit down there and watch, you can tell that a lot of people or the way they talk with one another or interact as if they're in their own living room. And you go, mm, it's 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 a culture that you have to also learn yeah. to a degree."
0: Yeah, the culture is a good point um, because I wondered before we had our talk today. I wondered about the future of theater because i'm very optimistic i think that live performances and shared experiences will become way more relevant after the last two years with the pandemic and feeling what it's like to not have this cultural variety and all the options to go out to experience something like this but i wondered how you feel about the future of the english theater in your role do you have a vision do you take it season by season um yeah how do you plan for the future how do you look ahead
1: well for me the um planning for the future doesn't necessarily only uh, deal with with English theater in Hamburg now it means I want to tour I want to connect with other English theaters like the one in Frankfurt and Berlin has a little one I want to I'm working now together with uh, an initiative called move the north that wants to connect um scandinavia with northern germany for example to have a show of from our theater go to copenhagen or to sweden and to bring in guest performances which i started this summer even though in the middle of the pandemic a six-week uh festival where i invite um people and i had people from vienna english-speaking and an improvisational group from there i had people from sweden down and i had english people Um, not from England because they were not allowed to fly in without (laughs) quarantining, but, um, you know, so it's, uh, it's creating some sort of festival, for example. So it's a lot of things that move outside of Hamburg, um, and, uh, uh, which is my focus right now
0: we are looking forward to that and also you are i think more and more going digital right is that something you will still
1: well more and more i wouldn't say i'd say we're also creating digital uh, Mm -hmm. formats like shows that we have um recorded which Mm -hmm. was also a big thing licensing wise you're not allowed to Um, and some contracts are very strict about you're not allowed to do that at all okay um now um which is something I realized during the pandemic, speaking with different uh, publishers, that they have to think like this. That we have to, for example, during the show Apologia, uh, the, the um, lockdown happened smack in the middle of our run. Mm. And I had to negotiate with the publisher to film it and actually stream the rest of the shows that we had in our contract, yeah. and uh, which they allowed. And now they tend to be a little bit more open. They're very different. And each publisher is different, but so we film our shows and we edit our shows, and um, so that we would at a later point be able to say this is our production from last year that we're streaming ten shows of, for example. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're, we're going hand in hand with. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've seen movie theaters showing like the stage version of this and this from yeah. the National Theatre yeah, yeah, in yeah, London, yeah, exactly. and so it's it's a culture that, of course, we do as well. And we've had we've had audiences from from well finland the states australia and even south america when we started to stream things and that's very interesting to be able to have that 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 broad
0: audience that's amazing so if the listeners want to check it out i will put a link to your website in the show notes and they can check it out themselves so paul thank you so much for this insight i have two more questions that i ask all of my guests towards the end of the interview Mm -hmm. so the first thing is I always am very keen to know what excites people, what inspires them right now. Is there anything going on in terms of books, shows, talks, people you met, things you
1: learned that you want to share with us? Um, well, I, I do think that it's uh, it's you can't find a general answer. Something that inspires me probably will not inspire somebody else. Mm-hmm. but I do think that for me, uh, reading, and i know i answered last time uh also conversation is mm-hmm. is super important and it actually during this time of the pandemic it's become clear how important it is yes. to talk to people and to talk to friends and um even if it's a phone call to a friend i haven't spoken to in a long time in sweden or the states or somewhere else it just is it just puts you back on earth mm-hmm. puts you back on 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 your track if you will and usually leaves me inspired. So it's not necessarily about what I'm doing mm-hmm. or about a problem I'm facing. It's about just everyday things, but other people are inspiring and written words like reading reading books and literature. Uh, it can be everything from, from just entertainment to a political, whatever. It just finds moments. I have those moments reading uh, a book uh, and suddenly I just spring out of there and open my pad and write down a line that i think oh my god yeah. that is so true yeah. or that is great and it could yeah. come from anywhere really any that's book
0: good. okay okay reading really well, conversations really, that's but... good <laughs> a lot of books a Let's lot of put books. It that way yeah <laughs> amazing so yeah and the last question that would be um what can we look forward to what's next from either you personally or the theater
1: for me personally it is um uh, I'm not directing until the beginning of next season, mm-hmm. um, so I have a little break now, where I'm writing a couple of musicals. Actually, a musical that I wrote myself a long time ago, which I'm completely updating and rewriting, mm-hmm. and then two new works. One one uh, musical that's premiering in the summer up in Sweden, and uh, another uh, with a German uh, German writers. I'm I'm s- just writing music for that, which is not set when it's going to premiere yet. So things like that
0: that sounds interesting i will also put up a link to your personal website where Mm -hmm. we can probably read more about that good perfect thank you so much paul for being here for sharing a little bit of your day-to-day life and experiences as managing director of the theater um i think we can learn a lot and there are some parallels between your work and different lines of work so thanks so much thank you That was my talk with Paul Glazer, I enjoyed talking to him a lot, I learned from his long experience in so many creative fields. My takeaway from this talk is to come back to a project from different angles, revisit an idea or a project again and again to gain perspective and get even more impulses. Like Paul does when he puts up a play on the stage for every department. But the biggest topic that will stick with me are the real-life events, the shared experiences. I think they will become more and more important over the next years for people and for brands. The more virtual reality, metaverse and artificial events we are offered, the more we hopefully enjoy the real moment, the shared experiences. So it's worth thinking about how your brand can provide such an experience. If you want to talk about it, visit my studio website and get in touch. I'm happy to talk to you about storytelling, brand strategies, and shared brand experiences. And if you're looking for some original music for one of your projects or you need support with a production or putting something up on stage, reach out to Paul. you find his contact in the show notes. Next week, I'll be talking to Sam Stokes. She is a singer, songwriter, producer, and she just started her own record label in L.A., Lilac Records. We talk about her creative work and We try to figure out where ideas actually come from. (laughs) That's it for this week. Take care, people. And I hear you next week on The Sweet Side. This podcast is produced by Sweet Spot Studio. New episodes each week, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating and subscribe to never miss an episode. Find out more at sweetspot-studio.com.